So uh, I'm going to begin with a very quick uh, story. I'll try to tell it fast, Um, kind of a globetrotty sounding story. In 2009, I was uh, in Japan to give some lectures at a school. And in my unencumbered time, I would travel, do little day trips all by myself, unaccompanied. So I'm, I'm in the city of Nara. And there's like people, Japanese people, they're in the street and they're getting really excited about somebody who's making street food. And they're making something that I can only really describe as green powder. They're like getting this green powder and I couldn't even figure out what they were doing with it. But like people were, (laughs) they were already kind of queuing up for it. And so I thought, well, I'm an idiot if I don't do this, right? And so I did and eventually it kind of got turned into a paste and the paste got turned into like, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe the thing that I ate. And I have no idea what was in it. Um, but it was pretty good. Uh, glad I did it. And, and I owe it all to Anthony Bourdain in a way. Actually, four or five days later, I was back here in the U.S. doing an onstage panel with Anthony Bourdain and Alice Waters and Duff Goldman. And, and Anthony, Anthony Bourdain was just a consummate pro. You know, he's this kind of guy who just showed up and did exactly what he was supposed to do, didn't give anybody any trouble, hit his marks. You know, um, maybe not a guy that you would really feel like you were getting to know particularly well. But I I do think one of the many contributions of Anthony Bourdain to this world is that people are a little bit more comfortable. I mean, when you go any place, you know, you don't want to eat like a tourist. You'd rather eat a little bit more like the locals. And sometimes you don't even really know which thing is happening. But if you eat street food, you know, food that's like just right out there being served on the street, and if it's the big point, a big key point would be street food that the local people seem very interested in eating themselves. You've got a pretty good chance that you're going to be knowing that place a little bit better through its food. So we're going to talk about that today. And we're also maybe not so much about the legacy of Anthony Bourdain, but how we deal with these things. I mean, Kate Spade uh, and Anthony Bourdain in the space of a few days, you know, what, what, how you process something like this, particularly when people ha- who have so much of what people think they want anyway, uh, don't even want to stay in this world. Uh, joining us now, and let me tell you what else we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to talk about Kim Kardashian and her new role uh, as clemency counselor and, uh, and uh, ambassador to Trump from, for America's downtrodden. Uh, and uh, we're also going to talk about a uh, podcast that we've been listening to called In the Dark. Uh, it is about one of America's apparently totally renewable uh, resources, which is wrongful convictions. Um, there just seem to be unending supplies of them for Nicholas Kristof to write about and people to make podcasts and documentaries about, which is unfortunately, I mean, that's a tragic truth, but it, it seems to be a real one. Uh, joining us now, it's very exciting, coming back from Vermont uh, after a brief Salinger-like period of retirement uh, or reclusiveness or something, uh, Teresa Kramer, a writer and uh, editor of eContent magazine. I guess, are you no longer associated with the cut? Uh, we just kind of got old and started ignoring it, so okay. it just doesn't really exist doesn't anymore. Doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I won't even mention it then. Forget forget about the cut. There is no such thing. Don't even ask me what that is. Uh, also joining us, Bill Usman, Director of Media Literacy and Digital Culture Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University. And Tanisha Dugan is a producing associate at Theater Works. And something else besides, are you kind of out? Like, can we say this other thing? Or are you, a, is it, is it supposed I to be a mystery? So. What's a mystery? So, <laughs> so, well, we have something called continuity and station ID and stuff like that. And so you, I don't yes, know. You can, you can yeah. just say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, you know. I, well, you already did. She right. signed well, an NDA. I said to you. <laughs> so anyway, if you hear a voice that sounds like, if you hear a voice on this show today that sounds like a voice you hear a lot on this station, that's because that's Denisha Dugan who's basically saying, what do you say? You say what station you it is. You can hear us on 90.5 WNPR and WNPR.org. There you go. 
So um, brush with greatness. You know, what can we say? Um, so, yeah, I, um, I don't know exactly where to begin this at all. I, I just know that this morning a lot of us were very, very surprised. Uh, I think we found out a couple of things, including that I think Anthony Bourdain is way more famous slash important to way more people than most people might have guessed. I mean, this is just sort of a bigger story than, than we might have imagined. But to, Teresa, there's also just that kind of kind of that sense. If you pair it up with Kate Spade, I mean, these are people kind of at the top of their game early. They have attained many of the things that people think that they should want uh, if people want to be rich and famous. Uh, and so it's always kind of an odd little moment to think, well, I guess that isn't – I mean, at some level we know that, that that, mm-hmm. that, that isn't what makes you happy. No, it's not. So this morning on my drive down here from Vermont, I uh, Mark Marin had reposted his interview with Anthony Bourdain. So I was listening to it and he was talking, you know, I got through the part where he's talking about himself as a child and he was talking about I was just an angry kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his persona was still a fair, I'd say cranky more than angry now. But, mm-hmm. you know, and he's sort of a very he was a little bit of an everyman. Right. Because like. Even in this interview, he's like, I was never really that good of a chef. Like, I could work in your kitchen, but I bankrupted a lot of people who I talked into giving me money for, for to actually open a restaurant. So he was sort of very accessible in a way that not a lot of celebrities are. And But he's also str- openly struggled with drugs in his past. And the first thing I thought of was... Um, you know, has he relapsed in some way, and mm. and did that lead to this? Right. Although this mm-hmm. was not like a Philip Seymour Hoffman situation. I mean, no. I guess we now know that he hanged himself uh, mm-hmm. in a uh, resort not too far from Strasbourg. Uh, so yeah, Bill, I don't know. I'm, I'm just gonna, we should just let everybody's thoughts go wherever they want to go. Well, one of the things I was struck by, I, you alluded to this just just now, Colin. I opened my Facebook today and. Everybody is posting about Anthony Bourdain, including people I never would have expected to be mm-hmm. posting about Anthony Bourdain. And the outpouring of love for him is cutting across the political spectrum, which doesn't really happen all that often these days. I didn't see anything nasty about him except for one one thing actually was on your page. On my page. One, somebody. one person, but yeah. then other people were – going against that person, he wasn't someone who was really on my radar all that much. Um, I never watched his show. It's just not an area that I'm really involved in, just as Kate Spade really wasn't. But I was astounded by how much he is on everybody else's radar and that this has elicited something in people. I don't know if it's because the two of them happened in such close proximity, but it is – I also was was stunned in some ways by how much this has become a cultural moment to the case where it was so obvious we had to talk about it today. Right. No avoiding it. Denisha, where are your thoughts going? Um, many places. Uh, Anthony and Kate both were sort of a part of my zeitgeist, maybe because of how old I am, right? So Kate Spade bags as a young middle-class person living in Connecticut was a total piece of uh, iconography. If you were, you know, you're of a certain place, you got that bag when you were 13 or 16 or what have you. Um, And Anthony sort of defines that space when I was in college. Um, And he was the great adventurer. Um, And he was, um, I think for me and my college friends who watched it all together, um, 
he took us to parts unknown and gave us the possibility and and the accessibility to see places go to places try food that had heretofore been told to us or we had absorbed were otherwise scary um and so i uh I'm with everyone who's feeling the feels, and yet I see this as an adventure, right? Uh, I think we all don't know what's on the other side of that door, and so the way in which we sort of digest that is with this fear and reckoning and sadness. Um, but for a man who is all about adventure, there's something kind of um, interesting about that journey. Um, and of course, Roll if this were on TV, I'd say now roll the suicide prevention. Uh. Right, we're gonna put, <laughs> we're actually gonna put the uh, suicide prevention lifeline phone number up on the web page for the show. So I think that might be one of the because unfortunately another thing that does happen mm-hmm. at times when if there's kind of a little roll of these things is that other people wind up committing suicide. I don't quite get why that is, but uh, then I kind of do get why that it is that is we're we're tweeting it right now and it is on the web page and I've got it here. I can give it out as as well. But uh, if you're listening to this at all and uh, going through anything like that or feeling a pain that you don't know how to get rid of any other way, uh, please don't. Uh, I've been through this in my own family. Don't do it. Uh, and really, there's there are other ways and people who want to help. And you can start with that phone call. Well, you can just look on Twitter. We've got it up and, and lots of other people are, are tweeting it today. And uh, we'll put it up on the web page too. Uh, but don't. It, 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 it does literally get better. Um, you know, I'm, Teresa, another thing that I was thinking about, Bourdain, and you, I think you, you touched on it too with his remarks to Merritt. I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of celebrities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's sort of LeBron James and you know what? We're never going to be LeBron James and we're never going to be Yo-Yo Ma either, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, there's all kinds of people that we're never going to be and whose who, who's attainments are just so great and vast or who have a kind of perfection that we can't come close to. And then there are kind of celebrities who sort of say, yeah, no, I'm really just you plus a few little modifications. And I think Bourdain, although he was, you know, handsome, funny, uh, uh, talented guy, he's I, I sort of think he's, he sort of says, look, I'm you plus I'm a little bit more adventurous. I'm more intrepid. I've got a little bit higher confidence level than you. But, you know, as we looked at him, we thought, I could sort of be more like him anyway, you know? Like next time I travel, maybe I'll eat something (laughs) that you would eat. I mean, he's really just a reality star, right, Mm -hmm. in a way. But we don't think of him that way because he was doing something sort of admirable with that reality celebrity and exposing people. And he wasn't, you know, the guy who goes and just eats gross things in a different country. (laughs) He was a guy – who's that, Andrew Zimmern or something? But um, he was the guy who – what was his tagline? Be a traveler, not a tourist, right? Mm-hmm. And which you know, if you're just going to Orlando and getting on a cruise ship every few years, like that may not have occurred to you before. And so he was really just a guy. And again, in the Marin interview, he was like, "This was so overnight. I wrote a little article in a little alt." paper that got picked up by the New York Post. The next day I had a book deal and then all of a sudden I had a TV show. Like I net this was so out of the blue for me, which I mean, the that's the American dream, right? That like you just and <laughs> a lot of Americans would like to think you can just sort of stumble into success that way. And for most people it doesn't happen, but it did happen for him. And it's so true. I mean, we can't you know, being able to be a basketball star is a God-given talent, but being able to travel is a personal risk you can take, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, that is attainable. Like, that 
is admirable. And the fact that you saw him as a regular guy and not this super wealthy guy with all the means in the world that allowed him to travel in the most lavish ways made it feel like anyone could do it. And I feel like there is a market now for travelers of all kinds. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I see like Black World travelers on the Instagram, and I see travelers for solo, you know, solo yeah. travelers. This idea that you could go on these trips, that you could take these adventures, um, any any man could do that, is incredible. Well, that's you know, I was sort of thinking about this because I read the thing you wrote this morning, sort of to this end on your Facebook page, Colin, and um, I was thinking, well. Huh? Well, my friend and I were known for a while for just flying to some random place in America and going on a road trip for a few days. And we ended up in some really weird small towns and read a lot of met a lot of strange people and really wonderful people to the point where I'm thinking about retiring to Los Banos, California. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I wouldn't have credited Anthony Bourdain with that before today because you know, we were going to little tiny towns in America, not French Polynesia. But it's the same thing, really. So I think mm-hmm. we're all talking about, I think, shared humanity, mm-hmm. right? And that there are those who seem uh, superhuman to us, like like Le- uh, LeBron James. Although you should all speak for yourselves that you <laughs> yeah. can't be Le- LeBron James. I personally think that Absolutely. I could be LeBron James. <laughs> but then there's those who their shared humanity really, really comes out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people are resonating mm-hmm. with with him. And mm-hmm. I want to extend something you said, Teresa, mm-hmm. this idea of he's not just going around the world eating gross things. Mm-hmm. He was making this larger point that what's gross to, to, to me may not be gross to you, mm-hmm. that what you find as just your everyday common experience might be very alienating to me, but I can try to get within that experience Mm -hmm. and realize that you're not just this weird other. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, even though it was a food show, I do think it was trying to make that point. Let's realize that my way of living in the world doesn't have to be everyone's way of living in the world. Yes, (laughs) mister. Yes, yes. Like, and maybe... Maybe because I'm an idealist at heart. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is why we're seeing such the outpouring, right? Because people want to feel that way and see that way and believe the world to be that way. And he felt like he manifested that. Well, I mean, I don't know if any of you heard it just driving over here, but they were running an old Fresh Air interview with him. And at one point, Dave Davies or whoever it is says, is it true that you ate an unwashed um, warthog rectum uh, on one occasion, <laughs> which is a question you could only ask mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain. I don't know who you will ask that question of now. Maybe that other guy you mentioned. But uh, and he said, yeah. And then he said, look, this is a very tribal situation, mm-hmm. and it's the it's the part the chief takes. Mm-hmm. It's the best mm-hmm. part after they killed it, and and he throws it on the grill, and then he serves it medium rare. And he said, and this is a situation where I just had to take one for the team. He said because this is he thinks it's the best thing, and mm-hmm. if I refuse it in front of him, he loses face, but right. also. I just won't ever be on the same footing with him. You can't get that relationship back after you said no. Um, and, you know, that's like a – that's sort of to, to the point that you're all making right now, which is like when you travel, really, a smart thing to say in a lot of situations is what would you have right now? I mean, like if you're dealing with a server or whatever or, you know, learn <laughs> learn, learn chef's – choice or something. There's words for that in most languages. Or, you know, I mean, what do you drink when you're, you know, I mean, that's, it's a good question to ask anyway, because otherwise, I mean, we're all kind of scared sometimes. Like, what if they make me have something I'm not used to? But that's why you're traveling. So. And, and we are all 
kind of scared sometimes. And so the other part of this shared humanity is that shared pain. And this is what became obvious to us this morning, that it doesn't matter who you are, we all live in pain. It's really hard to be human. Yep, absolutely. All right, so we're going to make a transition uh, to a slightly more facile topic, although it wasn't facile for the person receiving clemency. Um, You know, uh, Teresa, you said that aborting was sort of a reality star, although I think we can make the distinction between reality stars who are slightly more talented and interesting than we are and reality stars who, shall we say, are not. Um, So uh, Kim Kardashian intervened uh, on behalf of a woman who had been imprisoned for life uh, for a nonviolent drug offense. She intervened uh, with the president of the United States. And let's, uh, before we even talk about it, uh, I forget to play the Anthony Bourdain cut, which is too bad. But um, let's, uh, before we even uh, talk about it, let's uh, hear her talking to Van Jones on CNN because we all enjoy hearing Kim Kardashian's voice, of course. I think just he felt her heart and he explained that to me. And I was just, I mean, when he, when he said he has the papers in front of him and he's signing it, I just like, my heart was so full. I'm just going to throw them at you. You tell me yeah. who's right and who's wrong. Trump is using you as a political pawn. So now you're sort of, you, you, you've endorsed him in a way. You've kind of given him legitimacy. You might be in a campaign video. Uh, he used you. I think, I think Kanye's already given him legitimacy. So I don't, you know, in that way. So I, I was working on this before. So I don't, like, for being, I don't think I would be used. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and at the end of the day, he heard me out. We got the job done. So I, I don't think, like, what could he really use me for? Such an interesting question and one we could probably spend hours on, but we are not going to. Um, I, I think, you know, it's easy to lose sight. This this does connect with the, the next topic we're going to deal with because this, this seems to be this, in, this incredible um, once again, misprision of justice affecting Alice Johnson, who in 1996 was sentenced for, to life in prison without parole for a first-time nonviolent drug offense. So she's been in bar, behind bars for tw- for 21 years. I don't think she cares who gets her out. Um, but um, it's still <laughs> – it's still I, – I don't know. I mean, Tanisha, we have to touch on a little bit of that conversation because it's sort of like why – I think we know why somebody like that would have access to the president and maybe be able to have a conversation with the president that maybe somebody with a little little bit more fully credentialed can't. Yes. And let's start with the fully credentialed woman who has been working really hard on clemency, Topeka Sam. Um, she has been working really hard to get people who have been wrongfully accused um, clemency. And so we want to at least speak her name and thank her for her work. In terms of Kim Kardashian uh, and Kanye West, um, you know, we know what this is. Um, It's the same as, to your point, the Muhammad Ali call out this morning in his quote-unquote press briefing. we, we should probably clear, clarify that, which is that the president kind of floated the idea of posthumously pardoning, pardoning Muhammad Ali, to which Muhammad Ali's lawyer said, you know what? We're good. We're good. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. He's good. so We're good. good. Yeah. Um, there was nothing to pardon him for because the Supreme Court overturned that conviction in 1971. And to that point, what this is and, and the thing that I think is crushing about 
Kim Kardashian, what is very interesting about the work that Kanye has put out recently is that I think there is a I think I don't think I know that there is an extreme lack of understanding of blackness and blackhood and the um, you know, when she said the job is done, I think to myself, well, what job? Is it the job of getting this one woman off? Because the one woman is actually a representation of a larger problem that I don't think you're capable of having. And clearly, excuse me for saying this, that black man who so quickly left a black woman to have a white woman when he realized his success is incapable of having with you as well. So it's a it's a tough uh, it's a tough nut to crack. It's a hard pill to swallow because, yes, we are happy for this woman um, to to be free and to live her life as well as she can. We are sad because there are no systems to protect this woman as she comes out into freedom after being locked up for as long as she has been. And I don't think Kim is working on that job either. You know, Bill, this is something you and I both teach about in various ways. And and one thing that my class this year kind of decided was, at my, at my urging, is that it really does make sense to look at this moment in, his, in American history and American political history in terms of reality television, that many of the rules of reality television have been substituted for the normal rules of political discourse and behavior, uh, and, you know, and, including just that notion that every day something has to happen, right? So in reality television, at minimum, you know, somebody has to throw wine at somebody else. You know, I mean, it's, it's just to have a show, you got to do that. And so, and and uh, as we've looked at Trump at other times, and it's wow, wow, he can't keep a staff together. He keeps firing people. Well, that's, we, that's what he did on a show. He had a whole show that was like all about firing people. And and so here you have almost once again the perfect distillation of that. That you know, the person that he the, who could reach him would be the person who's really the living embodiment of reality television. Yeah, of course it was. I don't mind when celebrities or athletes use their power to advance progressive causes. I I think that's a really good thing along, you know, as Spider-Man or Russo said, with great power comes great responsibility and we should embrace that. This was thoroughly a reality TV act because it was thoroughly a symbolic act and I think – The problem with symbols is that they can so easily be taken out of context. Let's look at the larger context of what Trump's Justice Department is doing, the way he's rolling back the slight progress that was made in the previous era. And let's look at some of the other people that he has pardoned. Mm. It's, It's great for this woman that she's pardoned. This is a good thing. But what about his pardoning of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who caused terrible, terrible misery for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have been incarcerated and who revels in that. That's part of his identity. Right. I, I, I certainly think that, you know, somebody being put in prison for life based on a nonviolent first drug offense, that's like Jeff Sessions' idea of a really good day. It's like, oh, good. Yeah. My policies are working. Right. Um, so. so we're going to make one exception <laughs> to that and that's going to smoke screen and excuse everything else that we're doing to roll back justice. Which is what reality television is. It's like about one little thing. It's never about like any kind of grand sweeping policy. But I also think, you know, I don't know. Did you have something that you wanted to talk about I, as opposed to me say, making you talk about something? You know, I'm trying to think about – so, right, I'm happy to see – someone like Kim Kardashian finally using her celebrity for good, right? I'm terrified that the president is taking advice from Kim Kardashian. (laughs) But 
at the same time, like she had an opportunity once the paperwork was signed. I understand like you can't you're not going to wait four years or two years, whatever it is to get this woman out of jail. You got to work with who's in office. But she had an opportunity in the press afterwards once the paperwork was signed and she was out of jail to say the work is not done this Department of Justice is doing everything it can to fill more beds in for-profit prisons, you know, and she hasn't. So she, you know, maybe she will at some point, but I'm guessing no, at best she might find someone else she decides is worthy and start, you know, Instagramming about them. And to the reality television point, Mm -hmm. it's so perfect for the kind of, disaster that Kanye West left behind, you know, (laughs) like if there is anything that she as a wife can do to try to ameliorate some of the loss that Kanye experienced with all of his craziness over the past month. Mm -hmm. This is a perfect this is a perfect, perfect uh, swipe. I I find uh, (laughs) the the conversations that I'm in these days uh, astonish me and, and fascinate me at the same time. So uh, as we head into the break here, I will tell you that yesterday, it was yesterday in the newsroom. I'm pretty sure that that's where this happened. I think the three of us, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol and I, were discussing whether or not we would, at the snap of a finger with no conditions attached or no more information than we have right now, exchange Donald Trump as president for Paris Hilton as president. Like if I can, <laughs> you know, and I was saying, yes, yes. absolutely, I will take Paris Hilton. Yes. You know, I don't know. I know very little about her. But I don't think that really militates against her candidacy at all because I get, based on what I know, I just feel like we would come out of this ahead, you know, that, that I would take that deal not with an awful lot of cards face down on the table. I would still take that deal. So – but the fact that – and Betsy, Betsy Kaplan was the one who was not sure she would take that deal. So <laughs> – um, I don't know what that says. Anyway, we have to go talk to Betsy. <laughs> the things we, you know, Aristotle, but he had things that he talked about <laughs> hanging around the Lyceum. This is what we talk about now. All right, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about this podcast we've been listening to. Well, now Betsy Kaplan is thinking that I maligned her, but I still I don't think so, because the whole point of that, really, when you get down to it, it's sort of a Monty Hall question, right? You already know what's behind door number one. Donald Trump is president. You can see that. You don't really know what's behind door number two. Paris Hilton is president. You don't know know what really that door is. Would you just take it anyway, thinking it's got to be better? And she was not willing to do that. <laughs> so, um, but I understand there is a, there's a risk. I mean, she could be a really you know an even worse president somehow. All right, so we have to talk a little bit about something else. It's uh, the second season of a podcast podcast called In the Dark. Uh, it is uh, hosted and uh, very much the work of Madeline Barron. Uh, well, we'll just play the trailer just to kind of get you started. In February of last year, I got an email from a woman in Mississippi. She wrote that there was a man there named Curtis Flowers who'd been tried six times for the same crime. The evidence is iffy at best, she wrote. The man didn't have a chance. Curtis Giovanni Flowers murdered those four people. There's no doubt in my mind. And I think he needs to fry in hell where he's going. If he was executed, would you go watch? You damn right I'd go watch. I will stick the needle in him. I mean, it's hard to trust this investigation. It's hard to trust the people who ran it, and it's hard to trust the prosecution trying this case. Hey, where are the facts? Where's the proof? 
Mississippi, Mississippi, you know, we all know what goes on in Mississippi. Once we get you in the courtroom, you ours. If you're black, we got you. So the last one was full Whoa. of empty filing cabinets, and this one is full of oh, records. Just be cautious when you go approaching some white people houses, come out Curtis. Just be careful. All right, so you might be wondering, why did Teresa Kramer drive all the way down from Vermont? Well, there's nobody's ever been on the news. You know, it's more about A, podcast, and B, true crime po podcasts. <laughs> I mean, by, uh, you know, orders of magnitude, there's nobody who knows as much about them as Teresa Kramer. You really have kind of made a study. Well, like Nicholas Kwa knows more about them than you do, yeah. but I mean, like around here. Um, so I don't know, maybe just begin by just saying what jumps out about this particular story, which is being told in Mississippi uh, about a wrongful conviction uh, uh, of a young man who's uh, been in prison now for a very long time for a crime he very well may not have uh, committed. What jumps out uh, at you here? Well, so there's a few things that jump out that I think made this particular story, because certainly there are thousands, if not millions, of these stories all over the country. This particular story <laughs> jumps out, one, because he's been tried, is it five or six, six times? Six. six times for this same crime, and it just keeps going over and over again. So for most of the time he's been in jail, he actually hasn't been convicted of anything. He's mm. just awaiting his next trial, which seems absurd on its face in so many ways. But then the sheer, th this is Mississippi, right? So we're dealing with a racial legacy that go that is mortifying, terrifying, and it's American. American. <laughs> and it's, and, um, it, but so in the later episodes, we find out that this is not so far from uh, where Emmett Till was killed. And so there is a very on its face public history of racial tensions in a way that is very easy to show in the podcast. I mean, literally houses have been burned down, burned down. Businesses been, have been burned down. People have been heard saying, you know, if he gets free, you know, another house is going to burn down. The, the particulars of this story make it very good for this medium, I think. I, I think so, too. I, on the other hand, I don't know. Tanisha, I, first of all, I liked this uh, podcast. And I think one thing we can agree about anyway, it's an important podcast. I mean, to the degree that it demonstrates uh, how relatively easy it is to get a completely unwarranted conviction. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that Curtis Flowers is innocent, but just that nothing about this case so far has really persuasively pointed to his guilt. Um, f and often by kind of exploiting the feelings of uh, of of helplessness or uh, and many of the people who've been sort of persuaded to be witnesses as we, as we discover did so not because they wanted to be witnesses but because they actually almost believed they had no choice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I, I yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is you know this is a interesting podcast um, to listen to, and I love a podcast. In fact. I would love to continue to be the podcast person because they're so easy to consume. Ah. You know, they are. She's um, coming for my job. <laughs> but it's, it's true. It's a big tent. It's a big tent. <laughs> but it's true. It, it, uh, podcasts are easy to consume, and I think that's a good thing and a bad thing in the case of this particular, uh, what I think this podcast is trying to do. Um, because you do, I, I did find myself washing over some of the things that were happening because it's, you know, I'm driving in the car, my mm -hmm. mind starts to wander. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, 
quintessentially American, and I guess that's part of why I, it was probably easy for me to wa- wash over some um, spaces too, because I go, yeah, okay, I know, I know what road we're going down with this. Um, is it required listening? I guess so, but there's some dramaturgical conversation post listening mm-hmm. that I think is necessary for it to really have the impact that I think the the journalists are hoping for. Right. I want to have that uh, dramaturgical conversation, but I also want to get everybody a chance to sort of do kind of a first reaction thing. So, Bill, just go wherever you, wherever you want to go. I. I want to go to the the importance of the podcast because I do think it's it's deeply important on both the the micro and the macro levels. I think that there are different variations of true crime. I don't know if Teresa agrees with me or not, mm-hmm. but I think there is true crime. I, I said this in in some of our emails that kind of functions as lurid spectacle, and and this is this is not that. It's not really about the mystery of who killed the people in the furniture store. That's, that's, that's not really on the table here. But then there's true crime that is about investigative journalism and activist-oriented journalism really in terms of this is someone who something unbelievably brutal is happening to and it's happening because – of the cold indifference of our justice system. And I think we have to say it because of racism. And he, and and so on the micro level, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy of a real human being who's been in prison for two decades now, living in unbelievably horrible conditions for something that he probably didn't do and then on the macro level, this is just another story of why black lives don't matter in the United States. The more visible killings that we see is just one aspect of this. This is more hidden and it needs to be exposed. You know, I, I, I do want to talk about some of the finer points of it, as Tanisha was saying. But um, Teresa, as somebody who's listened to a, a lot of these kinds of podcasts, a couple of things jumped out at me. One of them is this podcast is unusual, not even as a true crime podcast, but also in that other larger realm that includes – you know, Netflix documentaries and things like that. We have this really, we have an inexhaustible load of either wrongful convictions or fishy looking convictions or law enforcement overstepping the bounds uh, of normal procedure. One thing that's unusual about this, and maybe you could tell me how unusual it is, Mm -hmm. is I don't think I've ever listened to or watched one of these things where nobody from law enforcement will talk. Uh, I mean, one of the things that you just don't get for episode after episode after episode is the prosecutor who, you know, clearly was on the warpath about this, his investigators or anybody. And this may be a little bit about Mississippi. Like in Connecticut, if there were something like this, we we can make these people answer our questions. You know, that's just not an option to not answer our questions. And let me just say the other thing and then I want you to respond. The other thing that I thought this podcast either unintentionally or intentionally didn't have as a journalist who used to you know do not exactly stories like this but but stories where the fact pattern would be very confusing. I was always looking for a Virgil to guide me through the underworld. Virgil is Dante's guide in the Inferno. And, and there, there's nobody in this like that either. There's nobody who can say to these two women, young women reporters, uh, Madeline Barron and her partner Parker, um, this is how it usually is or this is not unusual or this is the way things are in Mississippi or, oh, no, I've been looking at this kind of stuff for a long time. I've never seen anything like this. There's no, there isn't anybody really except them going to these places and looking at records that nobody's ever looked at or, or whatever. Right. So 
I don't know that I I don't think it's that unusual that law enforcement um, doesn't talk for these things. When you think back to Serial, which is sort of the granddaddy mm-hmm. of all these things, she wasn't able to talk to any prosecutors or law enforcement on tape either. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another podcast, and I think it might have been the first season of of In the Dark, where she was looking into the Jacob Wetterling case, which um, was sort of solved in the middle of the podcast. Someone finally confessed. and then, But she was sort of talking about how badly the case had been bungled. And she sort of like just ambushes a prosecutor in a in a elevator and they're just like, I'm not going to talk to you and walk away. You know, nothing comes of it. And but there is a podcast um, from the Atlanta Record Journal called Breakdown. And there have been a few seasons of it now. And it's looked at these sort of high profile cases. And I don't actually like that podcast very much. I just I don't the cases he looks into. I don't find that interesting. But the um, the host is a longtime court reporter. He knows the ins and outs of the Georgia legal system. And he um, can tell you, like, we don't have this recording because we're not allowed to record in this. And and it's legal for them to not release the tapes to us from the trial itself. And he, he can explain to you sort of why all these things are happening. And you're right. That's sort of missing here because these are people who moved from – I think the Midwest to Mississippi for a year to report this story. So they're out of their element. Like Mm -hmm. there should almost be a behind the scenes like documentary Mm -hmm. of them being immersed into small town Mississippi. Right. Even in Serial, Mm -hmm. there was that moment where they get that project from, I don't know, University of Virginia or someplace involved. And suddenly there are all these people who actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. was it the Innocence Project? I think so. Yeah. I do do think we're going to get an interview with the prosecutor next week. Right. Okay. um, Because there's still a couple episodes to come and I'm pretty, and, and on the preview, it seemed like she does finally get him to talk on tape. Right. I want that. <laughs> I want this guy. Even if, you know, I, I, it's driving me crazy mm-hmm. that, that there's no uh, response on this. Um, one thing, I mean, we can sort of say, OK, let's get to the dramaturgy, you know. I mean, you can do this well and you can do this badly. And there are times at which I think one reason your attention might be wandering in the car is because they haven't done as good a job as they possibly could mm-hmm. to hold your attention. It's true. And I think dramaturgy, and I mean that in two ways, right? So we've brought up the one point, which is this idea that black lives don't matter, which uh, some of us are, are um, I don't know what the right word I'm going to use. Please excuse me if I offend. Some of us are um, uh, woke enough to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that is one of the themes that this, this podcast is working on. But I think this idea of judicial um, command and this idea of, mm-hmm. of state-sponsored terror uh, is also one of those themes, and I in th- what I am learning uh, is because we're this is a, sh- a non shameless plug, but it will make sense in a bit. What I'm learning right now as TheaterWorks is in the middle of Invisible Hand, and as I'm talking to audiences because I moderate those conversations, is that giving that kind of context around Americanness or around issues that are central to America are so important because right now it's just chatter and noise without mm-hmm. the framework. And so you can't talk about you can you can talk about Curtis and you can talk about the families that have lost lost their sons and daughters and husbands and so on and so forth, but you it's harder for people to get to that piece, which is black lives don't matter. Okay, well that's noise cuz that's we've been talking about that for some time. Mm-hmm. 
But this idea of state-sanctioned terror, this idea that the state can determine when, why, how they want to manipulate you, you work with you, I think is a context that needs to be offered to to really get anything other than, yes, here's another story of, of uh, a crime that is going convictionless or, or, or criminal in quotation marks or not, is he or is he not? Um, I, I think yeah. in this one, Bill, we're hearing from a lot of very poor people. And you actually, mm-hmm. you don't hear poor people's voices that much. And a lot of these people are really, really, really poor. Um, I, I always thought that the, even the beginning of the series of Atlanta where Earn is really poor. It's like one of the few really poor, like living in storage units and stuff, mm-hmm. really poor characters that you see on television. These are poor people. They don't have any resources. They don't know what their rights are. And they often uh, uh, do things that uh, we might find ignoble. But I, I think often it's because they don't know that they have another option or that they won't be made into some kind of horrible victim. And we also do meet some other people who've learned to thrive within this system by exploiting its very cynicism. Mm-hmm. And the 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 pinnacle of this is Odell Hallman, I wonder just, uh, who's a guy who kind of switches sides back and forth kind of as needed, <laughs> as, as suits him uh, in a way that you can't possibly find admirable, but you might find it understanding. He's kind of the Omar uh, of, uh, of this story, although maybe not quite with Omar's code of ethics. But there's another weird thing about this, which you also, you're also hearing rural, poor, black American voices, which you also don't hear very much. Uh, 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 and they often have really interesting ways of expl- expressing themselves. But Bill and I both think this is kind of odd thing that Madeline Barron does, which is occasionally translate them, even when they're completely understandable. We're just going to play, this is uh, Odell Hallman talking uh, from prison to uh, w- one of the reporters on this project. Odell told Samara that DA Doug Evans called him in the jail and started talking to him about the Curtis Flowers case. Doug Evans found out that I had got caught up on off charge. So he called a jail and asked to speak to me. And he said, uh, Odell, I know you lied on stand. Do you want to, are you trying to make it right? Odell said that Evans told him, look, I know you were lying when you testified for the defense and I'm giving you the chance to make it right. And Odell said he saw an opportunity. You get caught up in a situation, you know, you can beat it in court, but why go to court sitting all kind of money on a lawyer but you got knowledge in your head that DA won't. Odell said when he'd gotten caught up in a situation, he could have spent a lot of money on a lawyer, but why do that when you have knowledge in your head that the DA wants? Bill, this is like a scene from a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a miscue. Like, that's definitely a miscue. Um, she, so need, she needs a Jonathan McNichol <laughs> who would step in and say, why are you doing that? Like, she, you know, like a producer to just say, this isn't necessary. Like, you could clearly understand what he was saying. But so, so OK, yes. That's a miscue. There are some aesthetic problems with it. There are – though there's some pacing problems as people have pointed out. There there are those part, part of Wait, sort I have of to stop. I, ha- I did not comment much on the pacing thing in our emails <laughs> because that is like so – such a New England perspective. Mm. And I just want to – like yes, perhaps it sounds really slow to us because we speak – 
quickly. We are, we are, it's cold up here, but yeah. I think it's important well, it, to like, It actually didn't you know? bother me. Yeah. I, I know it, it, yeah. it did bother some other people, but. The, that to me is similar to her translating. But the other thing I want to say about it though, is that I, it is about like how we approach this. I, it's, it's not supposed to be entertainment. And it, it's it's not something that we are really supposed to to enjoy. It, there is something different that's happening with this, and you know this. It, it gets to your point, Colin, about who is being spoken to. This is like a Howard Zinn type project. This is history being told um, from the bottom up, and there that is what allowed me to look past maybe some of these aesthetic um, problems in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, anyway, we have to stop there and we're going to have to race through our uh, endorsements on the other side of this break. But no, thanks. Thanks for that. Great conversation in the dark. You should listen to it. I mean, you absolutely should. And you'll get mad and occasionally you'll get impatient with the actual podcast, but still listen to it. Is there anything that Mississippi is really good at? Is that an unfair question? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The release of Amanda Fish from prison was secured by Emeril Lagasse. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sarah Koenig. On Monday, we'll be back on the air taking your calls. And now, back to Colin. All right, we are going to make some uh, recommendations uh, to you. Tanisha Dugan, you go first. Sure. Uh, I want to invite you all on Sunday to the studio, which is the third floor of 233 Pearl Street, otherwise known as Theater Works, for a conversation on dance, dance dialogue with Rosanna Karabetsos and Anand Bhatt, who is in Invisible Hand. It's a performance conversation hybrid where we're asking the question, is there an ecosystem for dance here in Hartford? Please help us find out. Come, that's come, a, come. That's a very good question. All right. Uh, Bill Usman, what have you got? Okay. Two books, but quickly, um, because I want to say that they should be read together in dialogue with each other. The first is by Nadine Strassen, who is a past president of the ACLU, and it's called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. But then the other one in tandem is called Must We Defend Nazis, Why the First Amendment Should Not Protect Hate Speech and White Supremacy by Richard Delgado and and Gene Stefanczyk. I think reading these two together is a really important debate that we need to be having right now. Interesting. All right. You came all the way down from Vermont. You can recommend as much things as you want. Um, first, on the true crime tip, I would like to, uh, if you like true crime podcasts and you have a sense of humor and you haven't listened to Done Disappeared, you're making a big mistake, especially season two, because the Davistown goose ganker is a criminal to be reckoned with. Um, also, it's past now, but next year, put this on your calendar, the strolling of the heifers in Brattleboro, Vermont. The, uh, and that's just one day that that happens? It's not, I just, it's think, actually I just thought sort that of, was like a daily a, occurrence. It's a whole weekend fest. However, on the it, it was last weekend. Um, it is Vermont's answer to the running of the bulls wherein children – lead cows down Main Street and to the green in a giant parade. And it is, it was maybe the best parade I've ever seen in my life. And I can't <laughs> recommend it enough. So put it on your calendar for next year. You left us for that. 
Um, all right. So I just want to remind people, first of all, to read The Power by Naomi Alderman. We're going to do a nose on June 29th with Rebecca Castellani, Rand Cooper, and Kate Russian, uh, where we discuss it. But we want to give you time because we like a lot, lots of listeners. And we're going to try to set up some kind of parallel way for listeners either using Twitter or Slack or something so that there'll be two conversations maybe going on at once or whatever. Okay. So um, I guess the only thing I'm going to say, and I don't want to find, sound too food schmoozy about that. Not that that's a bad thing. But, um, you know, just maybe if you want to honor Anthony Bourdain's uh, in some way, like eat something that you don't ordinarily eat or, you know, try something that maybe scares you a little bit or pick out, pick out something. I'll just, I, I was in Italy, for, I was in Rome for like about 10 days and I decided because I always drink Italian red wine, I'm not going to drink any Italian red I'm going to drink Italian whites and I'm not going to drink Pinot Grigio and I'm not going to drink, you know, because that's like what people think Italian white wine is. And and so I just, you know, I don't know. I, this does sound very food schmoozy. Um, but there's like all these great Italian white wines and... And so I came home and I went to the Wise Old Dog, and I, which is where I buy wine. And I said, I'm devoting my summer to drinking Italian white wines. And he said, Jacob, who runs the place, said, well, that's, that's very big-hearted of you. And I said, I know. It's just time to start giving back, right? I just have to do this. Uh, but anyway, pick something. It doesn't have to be Italian white wines. Pick something and try it, right? Pick something that opens you up maybe to the – you know, I mean like if you live in Hartford and you haven't eaten any Puerto Rican food ever <laughs> – <laughs> or you near the time to start. Yes, it's going to be a great summer for Puerto Rican food. Take me with you uh, when you do, or uh, try some of the incredible West Indian food around this city uh, as you go around stuff this summer too. You're going to see street food that'll be Puerto Rican or West Indian, uh, and it's worth trying out. So yeah, that would be a good Anthony Bourdain thing. Forget the Italian white wines; just have some Puerto Rican food and some West Indian food. said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah